Welcome back to Material World, where we find out what's going on with the things you eat, drink, smoke, wear, and otherwise buy, and why you should care. We're your hosts. I'm Jenny Kaplan. I cover the beverage, tobacco, and cannabis industries for Bloomberg News. And I'm Lindsay Rupp. I write about retail at Bloomberg. Today, we want to take a look at something pretty controversial. It goes by many names. Dope, hash, Mary Jane, ganja, weed. That's right, cannabis. While it's still federally illegal, recreational and medical use is legal in several states, including Colorado, and business there is booming. Let's talk about the world of weed. Specifically, we're going to look at how the federally illegal nature of the plant has shaped who's actually in the legalized business. On top of that, as momentum gains for national legalization, what might that mean for the people who've already joined the green rush? How will things change? But before we get to all that, first things first, let's get a quick rundown of the history of the plant in the U.S. Here to help us out with this very broad take is Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. If you live in New York City, you may also recognize his voice from your daily commute. Cannabis has been in the U.S. since the arrival of the English settlers. It was used then for paper, rope, sails, and clothing. This may come as a surprise, but the Declaration of Independence is probably written on hemp. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson grew hemp, though we have no definitive proof that they got high on their supply. In the early 1900s, Mexican immigrants made popular the recreational uses of Mary Jane. The drug became associated with immigrants and anti-Mexican sentiment. In the 1920s, states started to prohibit the plant. During the Great Depression, anti-Mexican and therefore anti-marijuana sentiment grew, culminating with the propaganda film Reefer Madness. Smoking the soul-destroying reefer, they find a moment's pleasure but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence, murder, suicide, and the ultimate end of the marijuana addict, hopeless insanity. In 1937, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act, putting a $100 per ounce tax on the substance, basically criminalizing the plant. In the 50s, stricter laws were enacted that set mandatory drug sentences. Cannabis was officially made illegal. As anyone who has seen the musical Hair knows, pot was tied to the anti-Vietnam movement in the 60s and 70s. As part of his attempts to bring law and order to the country, President Nixon officially launched his War on Drugs in 1971. In 1979, stats came out showing that 10.5% of high school seniors self-reported smoking every day or almost every day. Panic spread, and Nancy Reagan expanded the war on drugs with her famous Just Say No campaign. Jumping forward a bit, the pendulum swung back again, and medical use of cannabis was legalized in California in 1996. Now pot is legal for adult use in Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. It is legal for medical use in 25 states, D.C., and Guam. 
Though it's been decriminalized in many places now, cannabis is still illegal at the federal level. In some ways, that illegality has shaped the kinds of businesses in the industry. Right. It's mainly small businesses in the space. Bigger companies don't want to deal with the regulatory headache of being in a semi-legal industry. More than 140,000 people are employed in the legalized industry and related businesses. Still, there aren't really any huge players. We brought in a pot icon to help us guide you through what's going down in the business. I've been smoking since I was born, man. I could smoke anything, man. You know, like I smoked that Michoacan, man, Acapulco Gold, man. I even smoked that tight stick, you know? Tight stick? Yeah, you know, that stuff is tied to a stick, you know? Yeah. Cheech Marin is a comedian probably most famous for his work with partner Tommy Chong. After years of routines lauding their love for pot, both comedians are getting into the business. Cheech plans to be the face of a variety of different marijuana products, including one called Cheech's Private Stash. Well, first of all, thank you again for coming. You know, you've been such a figurehead celebrity in the industry. I prefer icon. Icon, thank you. You've been such an icon in the industry. Um, and now you're really going to enter it in a legal business kind uh -huh. of way. Yeah. I'd love to just hear you talk about the how it's changed, how the industry has changed. and Well, there is an industry now. I mean, before it was just smuggling and, and growing in your backyard or trying to elude the feds or elude any kind of law. But now it's been 26 states, I believe, have some form of legalized marijuana, uh, usually medical, but sometimes for just general use. So, uh, and each state's laws are different from the other state. And so it's like uh, there's not, no standard that you can adhere to. But you have to learn the laws of your state and then how to get around them. <laughs> <laughs> because it's still federally illegal, how has that impacted the state legal industries? I mean, you know, in terms of who's in the industry and what those kinds of businesses have to go through. Well, the, the really the bottom line of that is that it prevents, at this point, a big business from coming in. You know, Philip Morris is not going to buy our brand tomorrow, but but they will eventually. Uh, the other thing is that you can't have a bank account. And so it, it renders this an all-cash business, which pre presents a lot of other uh, 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 problems, you know. I mean, you're, you're right for armed robbery. And uh, you have to have big safes, and your, uh, the security elements are extremely tight, and so it, it, it just represents a lot of problems. And and you're still giving taxes to the state, mm -hmm. but you can't have a bank account because it's, you can't have bank accounts federally insured because it's against law federally. Right? Yeah, I've talked to some entrepreneurs who said that they pay their taxes. They have to pay federal taxes too, yeah, yeah. and they they literally like bring bags of cash to the Federal Reserve in Colorado, yeah. like literally just bags of cash. Yeah, Crazy. Exactly. I mean, yeah. there's some element of any big dispensary that has to include armored vehicles. I mean, come on. This is ridiculous, but it, but it's that's the way they... It comes down to in every state there that has legalized marijuana for medical marijuana or general use... Um, there's an element of that city's or the state's government that wants to overturn the law. They can't believe that they passed this and now people get to smoke weed legally or buy weed legally and they're doing anything they can to overturn the law. So they throw a myriad of roadblocks in your way, you know, they just, and it changes every day. And so that's their game to kind of try to wear you down. It's, it's 
fairly hard to wear stoners down. <laughs> Today on the show is Elizabeth Whistle, who owns a marijuana-themed bakery in Boulder called Baked. <laughs> That's a hoot. Thank, thanks, Nancy. Yes, it's been amazing. I started off with a regular bakery, and now I got lines out the door for stuff like cannabis cookies and space cakes. Oh. Well, Elizabeth, I got a sneaking suspicion that you are pro-pop. Oh, you think? Nancy, last week I made $650,000. It's more money than I made in the past 15 years. You're freaking right, I'm pro-pot. Nancy, I make cupcakes that get people high. There really are some small business owners who have seriously struck gold in the so-called green rush, like the baker in that Saturday Night Live skit. Momentum is in legalization's favor. So if it does become federally legal, what happens to all those entrepreneurs? Would it kill the weed industry as we know it? If so, why are people in the business supporting legalization at all? To break down some of these questions, I think we first need to get into the mindset of a weed entrepreneur. We brought on Chris Hagaseth, a former real estate guy who entered the green rush in Colorado. He's involved in dispensaries in Colorado, Massachusetts, Maryland, and Hawaii. He's opening up a weedery, like a winery, but you know, for pot, in Denver. So Chris gave us a little bit of insight on how federal illegality shaped who's in the industry. The, the marijuana industry at this point has been populated by you know, business owners that are generally you know, smaller entrepreneurial, you know, single individuals that are forming companies to take this on. I think the federal illegality's impact is that we're, we're not seeing you know, organized uh, companies funded by uh, big tobacco or pharma or something. So I think the federal legality has really kept a lot of the uh, more established corporate industries away uh, from cannabis at this point. Uh, Why do you think roles. that is? If you're a, you know, if you're big tobacco or, uh, you know, alcohol company or pharma, you have a lot of other investments, a lot of other financial interests, uh, shareholders, stakeholders who all have opinions about marijuana and its place in society. Um, not, you know, and that's, those are just moral judgments, not to mention the, the blatant illegality of it, the federal illegality. So I think it's untenable for organizations like that because of that because of their their entrenchment you know their their current entrenchment in, in their industries with again their own shareholders with their stakeholders and they they're having to wrestle with both the legal and the uh, you know philosophical or perception of working in the cannabis space and they they quickly say hey we've got too much to lose um, you know, a minor example of that is we've seen a, like in building projects we're working on, there's general contractors that are unwilling to work with us because, you know, somewhere else they're doing some work for the federal government. They're, they don't want to put that federal government work at risk. How do you make sure that when the big guys do come in, how do you make sure that your brand is, is the one that sticks around? If the billion dollar investors are not yet here in the cannabis space, but they, but they are coming, then when they get here, they're going to be looking for billion-dollar assets. And uh, right now, there's very few people in the cannabis space that are you know, building companies that really have that kind of value. And so to be able to control you know, the cash flow, real estate, and have a brand in multiple states, I believe you can build a billion-dollar uh, cannabis enterprise that will be attractive to institutional buyers when 
this you know watershed moment happens. And if you if we do all that building and the watershed moment never happens, then we just built a really solid company that has a you know, great foundation and should be profitable in the cannabis space for a long time. Chris has big plans for the future. In addition to the weedery in Colorado, he's planning on building four more, two in California, one in Nevada, and one in either Oregon or Washington. But he still needs $80 million to do that, and there are some unique obstacles to finding investors in this industry. It's a very common response from people that they come and look at the deal and they're excited about a lot of aspects of the deal. You know, so, and then they kind of they take that pause and they look at it and say, you know, for different reasons, it's, it's illegal. I can't do it. And maybe, maybe they temper their own enthusiasm, just with more you know, sober thoughts. Or a lot of times, I, I believe it's the people around them. Uh, you know, the, the investor has a, a husband or a wife that they're speaking to that has a, a more conservative opinion. Or, you know, they've got a, a, you know, a priest or a rabbi or a friend or a neighbor or a colleague at work that, you know, has that more conservative, hey man, are you sure you want to risk everything you've done for that? Uh, and so there, I think there's a, a lot of initial enthusiasm followed by um, you know, valid concerns. And you know, chief among those is, it, hey, this is still federally illegal. But are you going to invest with uh, the rule of law or with what you hope becomes a precedent for change? That's where a lot of people go from interested to um, you know, still interested but not writing checks yet. It seems to me that small business owners in the cannabis industry Many of them are also activists in trying to get the plant federally legal. If it does become federally legal, it's kind of a threat to those businesses because all these big, huge corporations then get into the industry and they could wipe out the small players. Do you think that that threat impacts the kind of activism that's taking place? You know, the... The, 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 you know, philosophically, I don't think our government should be protectionist. I think we should be a little bit more free market. Well, that, you know, my philosophy sort of fell away when the, the government here in Denver started put, doing, you know, taking protectionist actions to help protect me and my, you know, colleagues, the people that got into this business early on to, you know, they put uh, some moratoriums in place that didn't allow people from the out of the state of Colorado to, to come in and buy license, you know, just to buy their way into this business. And that gave me and my colleagues about, we had about two years where we got to really get our feet under us. And those two years made all the difference in the world for me. And so absolutely the, the practical, you know, considerations of, of, you know, growing a, a young business um, will collide with the, you know, the philosophical, uh, you know, aspiration that this plant should be legal and available to everyone. Despite my desire for that to, to be the, the case in the United States, there's also, you know, practically, pragmatically, it's to my benefit as, as, a, as an entrepreneur growing a business that, that it, it takes a little longer. Um, so I do think the, the answer is yes, the, the fact that the, pe the business owners are also advocates for legalization, there is a conflict of interest. Right now, there's still a shot for guys like me to become, you know, the Budweiser or Coors of the cannabis space. But I think when, 
you know, you get the billion dollar investors like Big Tobacco when they start investing in this space. I think it's going to be very difficult for the guys like me to have a have a shot at you know reaching that level in this industry. Chris gave us the business perspective, but weed policy affects more than just entrepreneurs. To better understand the social implications of our current federal marijuana policy and the direction it's going, we spoke with Professor Mark Kleiman. He can give us more of the bird's eye view. Mark is the director of the Crime and Justice Department and a professor of public policy at New York University. He previously taught at UCLA and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, among other places, and he's worked at the Department of Justice. Last year, the cannabis market in the U.S. was about $45 billion. If you, if you, can, you can try to compute from the surveys how many hours people are spending stoned, and it's up at least a factor of four over 25 years. So big increase in volume consumed, moderate increase in the number of users, and big increase in the potency and probably the risk of the drug. So the paradox is that as we have been moving toward liberalizing the cannabis laws, the actual cannabis problem has been getting a lot worse. So 25 years ago, I said, look, you know, we really don't much have much of a marijuana problem. We have a marijuana trafficking problem. And yeah, maybe if we legalize that would be bad because there'd be you know, more users. But our main policy goal ought to be to reduce the size and the misconduct in the illicit market. Mm-hmm. Now I look at the data and I have to say, look, we've got a substantial cannabis problem. There are about 4 million people who, by their own self-report, meet the clinical diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder because of their cannabis use. And unfortunately, the debate is still the 1968 debate about whether cannabis should be legal or not, ignoring the details about legal for whom, under what conditions, at what price, with what controls. Um, And so we're going to lurch from prohibition to the most wide open form of legalization. We're basically going to reproduce the alcohol market. That's the most dangerous thing you could do from a substance abuse control perspective. Having been frustrated for many years that we couldn't get any movement on cannabis policy at all, I'm now frustrated that we're getting movement in what seems to me like (laughs) precisely the wrong direction. Right. The other thing that the current debate doesn't take enough account of is just how cheap the stuff is to produce legally. Again, we're not seeing that yet because it's still illegal, illegal federally. You can have joints selling for a nickel. Cannabis in a joint today is probably worth about $4. Um, and I'm very worried about what's going to happen to heavy use as the price falls. Where we've already seen there's about a 2% a month drop in prices. Right. Well, will just run that forward a few years. So throughout the history of pot use in the U.S., it's been tied to racism. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Historically, African-Americans have actually reported less drug use than whites. The big group of African-Americans who are being damaged by the current policy are the users who are getting arrested as part of order maintenance policing. Right, so there are about 600,000 arrests a year for cannabis possession. Most of those are not the result of drug investigation. Most of those are a result of stop, question, frisk on the street. Um, It's an interesting empirical question. If you got rid of cannabis possession as a crime, which I think we should whether we legalize sale or not, 
how much would total arrests go down or how many of those arrests are pretextual and there'd be a different pretext for the arrest? I don't think we know the answer to that question. I think we also don't know the, don't, don't know the answer to the question. Of those 600,000 arrests, how many were the 27th arrest for that person where the additional damage is slight and how many were the first? So we don't know how many people get their first criminal record because they were caught with a joint. Um, but that certainly is a kind of damage hugely concentrated in high-crime neighborhoods, disproportionately low-income minority neighborhoods. The result is criminalization of a large number of African-American youngsters. There has been a race component from the beginning of kind of the cannabis right. policy. Right. Well, there's, there's two pieces of it, right? So there, there, was, there was prejudice against Mexicans, right? The reason that in the law, the drug is called marijuana rather than cannabis, is that Harry Anslinger decided that it was easier to get somebody afraid of something with a, something with a Spanish name. Wow. And then in the 60s, there was, you know, there were two groups of people that sort of Nixon wanted to demonize, anti-war protesters and blacks. And so there was an attempt to identify cannabis with those groups. It's possible that legalization will allow people to control their cannabis use much better than they can today. Um, but whether that possibility plays out, um, I think we don't know. I would like to see licensing for retail sales personnel requiring them to have both pharmacology training and substance abuse prevention training and with a fiduciary responsibility to the consumer to give advice that's suitable to the consumer rather than simply trying to sell as much expensive stuff as possible. That alone, I think, would be a major protective step in the market, and there has been no proposal for that in any of the states that have thought about legalizing. We're getting a lot of perspectives on this issue, but let's see how it's really affecting the lives of people who aren't in the business. I was out in Colorado a few weeks ago, and I decided to go to downtown Boulder and ask the locals whether life has changed at all since marijuana was legalized. The thing I see the most is so many new people moving into Colorado. And um, one, of, one of the communities that's expanding at an alarming rate is the homeless community. Homeless people are coming from all over the country because they don't want to worry about getting arrested for marijuana. And in Denver, Boulder, the homeless community is, is now getting out of control. I don't see higher crime or anything like that. It's just busier. Yeah. It's an, it's, the, the economy's decent. You know, we're not in a tanker or anything yet. And uh, so I didn't think it all goes together. It'd be interesting how many uh, pot shops can sustain a, you know, a lull in the economy. I mean, when you're walking down the street and someone's smoking marijuana and you have your little baby with you, I don't think that that's the sort of message that you want to give her or him. Um, and so, me personally, I don't particularly care for it. I think it's, um, it's not a good thing. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of people coming in from out of state, asking a lot of questions, and sometimes in this role as um, working in the head shop, we feel like uh, marijuana dispensary traffic cops pointing people into the right direction. People will travel hundreds and thousands of miles and won't bother to look up and to see how this works. They will come all this way out here, and then we'll ask, okay, now, how does this work? <laughs> 
So it's clear that legalization could have mixed consequences for business and society in general. For some small businesses, federal illegality has created a defense against major corporations entering the space, but it's clear that it's not an equal playing field. We wanted to hear more about the racial issues Professor Kleiman talked about, so we reached out to Charlotte Green, an activist working on that very issue and a former newscaster in Alaska, who very publicly quit journalism to pursue a professional career in cannabis. Now, everything you heard is why I, the actual owner of the Alaska Cannabis Club, will be dedicating all of my energy toward fighting for freedom and fairness, which begins with legalizing marijuana here in Alaska. And as for this job, well, not that I have a choice, but I quit. All right, we apologize for that. We'll be, we'll be right back. Need, uh, pardon for us. Need wow, mic drop. So after that, Charlo opened the Alaska Cannabis Club, the state's first legal marijuana company, founded Go Green, an organization focused on cultivating diversity in cannabis, and started an online talk show called The Charlo Green Show. Charlotte was a longtime personal user of marijuana, but she first got interested in the business after traveling for work to Colorado to report on what was happening there. She says she saw an opportunity to help people, so when she got back to Alaska, she got involved at home. Her exit from journalism happened after she reported on the local industry and had to come out as an owner. Charlotte says she's not okay with what the business looks like now. She's determined to raise awareness about the lack of diversity in weed. Well, I, I think what's being created now is a culture of not small business, but white business. White. Anyone that wasn't a target at first, you are okay to go ahead and start up your own business. I think the industry itself should be really, really ashamed of, of what we are allowing to perpetuate, which is just as harmful as prohibition. Locking the people out, locking the communities that have been harmed so devastatingly by cannabis prohibition from the industry so that we can get dollars and cents going back in and actually be a part of, of the um, economic infrastructure. Will the federal government legalizing open that up to, to minorities? Um, I really don't know. I do know whatever is happening now isn't working. So if that's an alternative we need to explore so that poor people actually get a shot at this, I mean, I, I just don't know. Do you think that, I mean, it seems like maybe federal regulation, like you're saying, could impact that and maybe help in that way. But do you also see it as a threat in terms of opening the floodgates to, you know, big industry that would then prevent those same people who aren't able to open businesses now? Would that further prevent them? I mean, it would create a huge, it seems to me like it would create a huge monetary hurdle for anyone trying to get in. If we as an industry allow these larger companies to come in and lobby for even higher barriers of entry, then, then that's on us as a community. Right now, the cannabis industry is lobbying for higher barriers of entry to cut out people of color. Am I concerned about us being cut out when big tobacco gets their chance at it? We're being cut out now. Got it. And, and we're not going to rally for change if it just means we're rallying so that the rich in the industry can get richer. So no, federal legalization is a non-issue when we're talking about the industry impacting the people that it needs to. Right now, we don't have it in. When federal legalization comes along, maybe we will. I really, but right now it's broken. How do you think we move forward here? If we as an industry are going to continue to prosper and grow and continue 
serving the cause that most of us got into. The, it's, it's not to make the rich richer. In fact, a lot of those people really couldn't care less about the community. But if those of us that the community, that helped build this community, pay really a close attention to the roots of cannabis prohibition, which is racism. So paying attention to where we came from and looking at where we're at, we have to pay attention to that. If we forget our history, then we're bound to repeat it. Many people are being blinded by money, but it's up to those of us that know life is about so much more to redirect the ship. Charlo is raising awareness of this important and less talked about issue through her various organizations. We circled back to our new pal Cheech to get his thoughts on the issue and where he thinks the marijuana industry is headed. Someone we spoke to, um, someone, an activist we spoke to, Charlo Green, she was talking to us about how she still feels like the current industry, the state legal industry, is kind of divided uh, by race, that, that it's still people of color are not really in the legal industry. No, I, I haven't encountered any. They work for the industry, but they are not the owners of the industry. For the most part, because it, it costs a lot of money. I mean, it's free to anybody who has a lot of money, but, you know, by and large, uh, you know, they go into other businesses that are legal and there's no uh, risk. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't, you don't work all your life to raise, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and then have it blown in the weed industry. You know, they buy a, a, a car wash or a laundromat or a pizza place or, you know, something like that. All those are legal this week. Yeah, for now. <laughs> for now. Car washes, though. You never yeah, know. You never know. Yeah, be careful with that. <laughs> kind of launder money in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you think things are going to change when it does become federally legal? Well, what it allows when it's federally legal is you can have a bank account, and uh, it will allow big business to come into the, the field at that point, and people can choose to do that or not. I mean, you know, you look at the analogy of the liquor industry, uh, big businesses obviously, but there's also small boutique uh, winemakers and vodka makers and you pay your money and it takes your choice you know that's, right so but it's uh it's not going to go away uh-huh. I mean, it's like a lava flow and uh, you can stand in front of it i wouldn't recommend it <laughs> i mean i look at it from this point of view that uh, who wouldn't want to buy a pack of chichin chong's menthol light 100s yeah. Marijuana. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you go in there and it, 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 it'll be like that. You can go into a, a liquor store or you know, a liquor store to buy your weed or whatever store that sells it. And then, hey, I want the kind of... And what they like is that, uh, by that aspect, is the standardization of it. They know what they're going to get. You know, a lot of times you don't know what you're going to get or how strong it is. That's the whole thing with this edible thing that's really in flux. I weigh 160 pounds and somebody else weighs 260. Mm-hmm. And how is that going to affect you? So they haven't haven't standardized that yet. Cause I, I'm, for me, I don't like edibles. I'm a bud man. Yeah, barely. All right. This bud's for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you. This was amazing. Well, that was a lot to digest. 
Federally illegal weed is a complex issue for businesses, even in states where pot is legal. Totally. I mean, on the one hand, it complicates things like banking and finding investors. And on the other, it's given entrepreneurs a head start on building businesses without the outside threat of established companies. So for people like Chris, those working in pot businesses that have been around for a little while, it's not necessarily preferable to have federal legalization happen tomorrow, even if he ideologically believes that pot should be legal. From a business perspective, he wants more time to build his brand. That way, when big tobacco or big food or any of the big businesses do enter the world of pot, people will already be familiar with his brand. Cheech talked about that too. Part of the reason he's getting into legal weed, furthering his pot icon status, is because his name is well known and trusted. He can build a brand that would appeal to one of those big companies down the line. And in addition to the business issues, and opportunities with semi-legal cannabis, there are also serious social implications of prohibition and legalization. The pot debate in the U.S. has had racial undertones for a really long time, and people like Charlo are standing up to say that it's still happening. She said maybe federal legalization would help, but on the other hand, legalization without thoughtful and practical policies could really exacerbate drug abuse, like what Professor Kleiman was talking about. Still, it seems like only a matter of time before federal legalization and businesses and, you know, casual users are preparing for that eventuality. I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it all goes down. Thanks for listening to Material World. If you like what you hear, you can find us on Bloomberg.com, the iTunes podcast app, or wherever you listen to shows like this. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at LC Rupp and Jenny's at Jenny M. Kaplan. You can also find Cheech at Cheech Marin and Charlotte at I am Charlotte Green. We'll leave you with these parting thoughts from Colorado resident Marianne Brown. Well, you know what? I'm originally from Boston. I'm here three years. It's more comfortable, I think. You know, I smoke pot. I mean, God, I'm 61. I start, I was back there with it. And uh, I think uh, the idea of being able to go into a, a store and purchase something that's good for you, that has... Um, that's not going to make me anxious. It's going to be more of an indica that's going to make me relaxed or whatever, something like that. I think that freedom is wonderful. I just like the freedom of being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And um, no big deal. Think about all the synonyms in English for using cannabis. That's a pretty long list, not not quite as long as the Inuit words for snow. Getting stoned, getting wrecked, getting buzzed, right? getting fried, getting baked.